Mark, well, we did a, this a little merry-go-round way, huh? We, uh, we started by looking at uh, Mark 1 last year, and we worked all the way through chapter 8, and then this year we took a little pause and we went through some other books of the Bible, and now we've come back uh, into the Gospel of Mark. And uh, as we, we look to this, we've gone through Mark 11, and then we went to Easter, right? So we kind of went from 11 to 16, now we're coming back to Mark 12. Uh, but there's lots of good things going on. Kevin wanted me to remind uh, the East Hampton group that for tomorrow's D group, you are actually going to be using the questions on the back of the bulletin called Soaking Up the Sermon this week to, uh, to have your discussion. And for the rest of you that aren't in a D group right now, these are questions for you to use uh, throughout the week to just continue to remind you of what it was that you heard from Sunday morning's message uh, and continue to engage with that text. So use that to your advantage. As we get into Mark 12 this morning, uh, I have one question. I like to start things with questions. Uh, I like questioning, right? Maybe I should have been a detective um, at some other time. But uh, here's my question. Have you ever gotten hold of something that wasn't yours and then did everything that you could to keep it? Have you ever been there? Right? Like, uh, as a child, my sister and I used to battle over our favorite things, right? We had the favorite toys. We had, like, things that we just thought that were special that were ours. And sometimes we didn't even own these things, right? We'd go to Grandma's house, and we'd see this really cool gumball machine because my great-grandmother had a gumball machine growing up. Um, so we would go over there, and we'd get all the pennies that we could, and we'd put it in there, and we'd, we'd get our gumballs, and we'd come back sugar high, and our parents loved it, right? Uh, but... All the time, we would go over, and I would be like, that's my gumball machine. It wasn't mine. I didn't own it. It was actually Grammy J's. It was hers. It wasn't my property. But she loved seeing the smile that came to my face every time I came into the house to get a gumball. Uh, There are other things. My sister and I have battled uh, over uh, many things, uh, many times where she's wanted to throw me under the bus, and I've wanted to throw her under the bus for stealing something that wasn't rightfully hers or rightfully mine. We all have probably been through situations where we have seen something that wasn't ours and we've wanted it, right? The Bible calls that coveting. (laughs) There's bad news for you this morning. Uh, When you want something that is not yours, uh, that is the sin of coveting. Uh, But this morning, as we think through that, I I wanted to tell you just a little story from a show that I've been watching lately. Rachel and I have been watching this show called Suits. Anybody seen Suits before? Okay, how many of you have heard of Princess Meghan? Meghan Markle, okay? Yes, yes, not Meghan Ellis, Meghan Markle, right? <laughs> um, so Princess Meghan is uh, one of the, the stars in the show. But basically, the, the premise of the show is this. There's two guys, Harvey and Mike. Harvey is a big-time lawyer in New York City, and Mike is a genius. Uh, he's somebody who has a photographic memory. But Mike hung out with the wrong crowd. As he was going through college, his roommate... Uh, he smoked pot, and he really enjoyed that, and he got him busted uh, for something that he did not do. It led to Mike's, ex- uh, he got expelled from school, um, but Mike is, is helping his friend out one more time as he's in a really dire situation, and he has a briefcase full of some substance, and he walks into a hotel, and he tries to uh, pass off this deal, but he notices that there's someone that he saw in the lobby who is not actually a hotel worker, but a police officer. So he decides to run, right? He runs down through the hotel, and he runs into another room, and he bumps into this guy, Harvey, who is looking for a new associate. 
And as he runs into him, he runs into the office, and his suitcase flies open, and everything goes everywhere, and he's busted. And Harvey goes to kick him out of the, the door, but he, he takes him in, and he says, I will prove to you that I could be the best lawyer that you have ever seen. And so he sits behind a computer, and he says, ask me anything that you can think of. And so Harvey asks him a specific question about the law, and he gives him this answer. He's like, well, you just Googled that. And he flips the computer around, and he was playing solitaire. So uh, he shows his photographic memory on display. But the two of them go on, and they become this incredible partnership uh, where they handle some outrageous cases. And Mike, or Harvey actually backs Mike up, and he says that he is an official lawyer and that he's been to Harvard. Mike's never been to Harvard. So they're basically committing this giant fraud together as they're trying to help people uh, overcome their legal battles, right? Sounds like a really good show so far. <laughs> uh, you're probably thinking right now, maybe our pastors should watch some different things on TV. Right? Uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> it's one of those things that came up on Netflix and now we're hooked. Um, but in this, this show, there's actually two characters that have a conflict for the ages. And their names are Lewis and Nigel. See, Lewis, Lewis Litt is a number-crunching, hard-nosed, mud-bath enthusiast. He's someone who is a strong character, he's powerful, and he is good at his job. And he has a counter-partner named Nigel, Nigel Nesbitt. He is his carbon-copy arch-nemesis. He's a pomp Englishman, and the two of them don't get along. But in this company, the two hold the same position as senior partners. Lewis represents an office that's based out of New York, and Nigel represents the London office. And their two firms join together, uh, and as they joined together, they had to run an efficiency analysis, basically to determine who was necessary as an employee and who was not necessary. And they made a deal together. Uh, Lewis would keep Nigel off of his list as long as Nigel kept Lewis off of his list. And they go through this analysis, but Lewis doesn't keep his word. He throws Nigel under the bus, and he puts him on this list. And somehow, miraculously, Nigel doesn't get fired. And it starts this beautiful conflict where they do everything in their power to make each other miserable. But in, like, weird things. Like, Nigel takes all of Lewis's pens, and he replaces them with a different type of pen in a different ink. He takes all of Lewis's favorite snacks in the office and he throws them out and he bans them from the office. And they go back and forth and they try to make uh, these, these agreements and come to a place where they can actually work together. But the conflict of the ages isn't over pens. It's not over what kind of snacks are in the offices. In fact, the conflict of the ages comes because Nigel reaches out to Lewis for a favor. See, along with their admiration for mud baths, and instilling fear into others, and meticulous attention to detail, both Nigel and Lewis love cats. Now, this is my kind of show, right? And Lewis had a cat named Bruno, but Bruno tragically died earlier in the show. And Nigel comes to Lewis, and he tells him that he's about to take a trip to Hong Kong, and that he needs somebody to watch his cat, Mikado, for him for a period of two weeks. And Lewis agrees to take Mikado and to watch her, and he grows a great affection for Mikado. Everything was going brilliantly until Nigel returned from his trip early, a week early. He comes into the office, and he demands that Lewis would give him his cat back, but Lewis is not willing to give his cat up. He wants to hold on to Mikado. 
him and Mikado have a special bond, and they have not been able to uh, go any longer. Mikado brings Lewis mice, and Lewis, in his words, takes care of her physical and emotional well-being. And in fact, as Nigel comes to get his cat back, Lewis decides to countersue him for custody for this cat based on his negligent care for her because he was gone for a week. <laughs> so the two agree to a mock trial in the office with the associates, and they get to choose who will represent them. So Nigel does something underhanded to Lewis where he goes and he takes his fifth-year associate, basically his right-hand man, and he sends her away to Barcelona during the trial so she can't be there for him. And Lewis is sweating, and he doesn't know what's going to happen, and Nigel rips him to shreds in front of all of the associates. They all think that he is a money-hungry, power-driven animal. And they're probably right. But Lewis starts to break down, and Lewis reaches out to not an associate, but a paralegal named Rachel, who comes to his aid for this trial. Uh, Nigel's big move was to take somebody that Lewis had fired and to bring him in front of all of the associates as a witness to Lewis's character. So he talks about how Lewis called him an imbecile, how he treated him poorly, how he was never a good boss, and how he made him miserable, and how he actually made him care for his cat, Bruno, who he was allergic to. And a day later, Bruno died. Nigel has Lewis nailed. But Rachel comes up, and she spins all of these things on this guy named Harold. She says, Harold, you are now happy, aren't you? He says, yes, I'm very happy. You're in a position where you have a lot of success and a lot of power. Yes, I, I am. I'm, I'm enjoying myself. And she says, so how did you get there? And he says, what, what do you mean? I was fired. That's how I got there. And she goes, no, the only reason that you got this job was because Lewis trained you to be the person that you are so that you could be a successful lawyer. And all of the associates go from hating Lewis to embracing him. And they have this giant success. And in fact, they vote they actually go to the jury and they vote, and Lewis wins custody of Mikado. It's incredible. But there's still one problem. Mikado's not his cat. He doesn't belong to Lewis. They had a mock trial. This is not real. But they're in trouble. Lewis and Nigel meet after the trial, and they come to a settlement. And Lewis agrees to give Nigel back his cat, who rightfully belongs to him, in exchange for his position over the associates again, where he can exercise power and instill fear and have influence over them. As we come to Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable of a man who owns a vineyard with wicked tenants. And the main idea is that their pride and selfishness leads them to rejecting the gift of God that's in front of them. There are a few things that we will learn from this parable. First is this, God is gracious to us. God is gracious to us. Secondly, we're going to learn about ourselves that people are selfish. We are selfish individuals. Third, we learn that our selfishness and rebellion has separated us from God. We then learn that God has sent his son to redeem us. 
And lastly, this parable points us to the ultimate truth that how we respond to God's good gift has eternal consequences. Follow along as I read the passage for us this morning. Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. It reads like this. He began to speak to them in parables. And he said, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. As we approach Mark 12 this morning, there's one truth, is that all of us are, have some sort of relationship with God. We have some sort of relationship with God. Either we know him and we love him, or we know of him and we don't know him personally just yet. All of us come into the room this morning as people who have some sort of relationship with God because God has created humanity. He's created the world that is around us. He's created us in his image and in his likeness. And the reality that we need to address this morning is, what does our relationship look like? Do we know him? Or do we not know him? Does he know us? Or does he not know us? As Jesus begins this passage, we need to remind ourselves of the context of what is happening here in Mark's gospel. In Mark 11, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and he's declared the king on Palm Sunday. We read from Psalm 118 this morning, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was the cry of the people, the cry of their salvation, that one king would come and that he would deliver God's people and establish for them a right relationship in which they could live with God in eternity. As Jesus comes into this city, he's declared to be that king. And the cries of the people are for God to save them, but they don't know what it is that they're proclaiming. He comes in and he curses a fig tree as he's in the city of Bethany. And then he goes to the temple where he finds that God's people, the very leaders of this temple, have turned this place from a house of worship into a den of robbers. They have taken something that is not rightfully theirs and they've used it for their own power and their own influence. And Jesus flips the tables in a fit of righteous anger. And he cleanses the temple. And then he leaves the temple and he passes by the fig tree again. And as he passes it, it's withered away 
And his disciples point this fact out to Jesus. And Jesus' call to them is not to rest their faith in men, but to rest their faith in God. He says, have faith in God and in no one else. And then we see after that that Jesus goes again to Jerusalem into the temple in Mark 11, verses 27 through 33, and he's confronted by them about his authority. And that passage begins a series of five different conflicts in which we will see Jesus and the Pharisees battle about authority. It builds this conflict that exists between the Pharisees and Jesus that ultimately leads to Jesus' death. And we arrive here at this parable, and in verse 1 it says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants that were in another country. As Jesus begins this parable, his audience would understand what he is saying with great detail. The idea that there would be a a merchant uh, farmer or a tenant farmer was very realistic to the Israelites, especially for Jesus who came from Galilee. Galilee was a land that was full of riches and had had a great climate for a period of about 300 years. So as he comes to them, he's not trying to hide some sort of statement. He's trying to address them directly. And what he tells us is that a man plants a vineyard, he puts a fence around it, he digs a pit for a wine press, he builds a tower, and then he gives it to other people. And the first point that I want to point out to you this morning is that God is gracious to us. God is a giver of good gifts. And what these tenant farmers failed to recognize was the source of their farming. It was God who provided for these people. It was, in fact, this owner that provided the land for them to be able to do the work that they had so that they could generate an income and live with their families. See, God has been very good to us. If we think about all the ways that God has been good to us this morning, we can think of just a few things in this room specifically. First and foremost, we are gathered people who are not worshiping under persecution. America has been a place in which we can come and we have freedom of religion, where we can worship God freely. And persecution is growing there, right? There are ways that we could be persecuted as Christians in America right now. In fact, there's plenty of ways that we could be persecuted as Christians in America. But the fact is, is that we still stand here today, and nobody's barging through that front door right now to stop me from saying the name of Jesus. That is a good and gracious gift from God. You're sitting in a nice, beautiful green chair that's padded and maybe has a couple of stains here or there or a tear here or there. But you're in a building that has heat and electricity. You're with other believers who have driven here in their cars, who come from their homes or apartments or wherever their living situation. But most of us in this room have a roof over our heads. We come to a church building that has stood for over 200 years, and we get to worship together. God is gracious to us, friends. And for those moments that we feel the persecution coming, where somebody pushes back against our belief, we need to be reminded of how good we've got it. We have a sound system. 
we have guitars, although that might not always be a blessing. <laughs> we have microphones. We have TVs. We have a nursery. We have food downstairs. God is good and gracious to us. He provides. But the reality is, is that all of the material things that we have in our lives, whether it's our houses or our cars or this building or these chairs or these TVs or these light fixtures or the wiring, you name it, all of it is not eternal. And it doesn't belong to us. We may have been part of the giving to make these things happen, but the reality is, is that God has provided all of the things that are around us in our lives, and he has been good. We are temporary tenants in a world that is fading away. But there is good news this morning. God's kingdom is eternal. God himself is eternal. And the things that wither and the things that fade God will never go away. As we think about that story with Lewis and Nigel, see, this all began on a temporary basis. Watch my cat for two weeks. And this cat watching for two weeks turns into a trial where they're ripping each other to shreds and their character's questioned and they come back and they make some sort of agreement again. But the reality was is that that was always going to be a temporal or a temporary situation. We need to recognize how good God is to us and recognize that we're only here for a little period of time and that we need to embrace what God has given us with his grace and be thankful people. As he continues to tell this story, as he gives them this parable, he says, and when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The owner of this vineyard has every right to come back to this land that he has purchased, to the vineyard he has planted, to the wine press he has created, to the tower he has built, to the fence that he has put up. He has every right to these things to come back and take from them. But what we find here is that as he continues in grace, he comes and he sends a servant to these tenants to just take a piece of the earnings. Oh, boy. What he takes from them is actually a little bit of wine. And what we find out from scholars is that they tell us that this fruit, the fruit that they had, the wine press that exists there, is, it points us to the reality that what the owner is asking for is he's not asking for a monetary source. He's asking them for some of the goods that come from the farm. I mean, what a deal. Let's think about this. If you owned a piece of land and you were able to produce some sort of fruit or crop and you leased it out to someone else, you could say, hey, I'd like uh, to charge you rent and interest and I'd like to take all of these things, and it would make me have a cushy life, and I would really enjoy myself. But what the owner of the farm does here is he says, I just want a little bit of the proceeds. I've purchased the land. I pay the taxes. I make sure that you're taken care of. You can do as you please here. Just give me a little bit of wine in return. 
and how they respond to the servant who has been sent in the authority of his master. They take him and they beat him. And they hold on to it and they say, this is mine. It's not yours. You can't take it. I worked for this. And it continues. Because the master sends another servant. In verse 4, he sent another to them and he struck them on the head and he treated them shamefully. It was enough for one man to get a beating, but now another man gets a beating. And he's struck on the head, treated shamefully, and sent away empty-handed. And it escalates further in verse 5. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. These verses show us over and over again that the master who has right to his property, as he sends people in his name to just take some of the proceeds, it shows us our own selfishness. It's the battle of the gumballs. That's mine. I want all the gumballs in that gumball machine. I want to take them all. You can't have any of them. And now many of you have know what it's like to see children argue, right? I mean, think about this illustration for a moment that as I'm a child, probably five or six years old, with an entire giant thing full of gumballs, I'm saying, those are all mine. You can't have a single one. A single one. I was being a selfish little brat. I was taking control. I was like, nope, these are all of mine. You cannot have any of the gumballs in this land. Mine. Mine, 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 mine. And I'm not talking about Nemo right now with those seagulls. Mine, mine, mine. No. I was holding on to these things. And the truth of my heart was that one little gumball, something the size of a quarter, he created in me such an evil thought and such a selfishness that I was unwilling to share with anyone else. Because that's what sin does to us. Sin is like the one little gumball in the gumball machine that grows into a bunch of them and then is coveted by one person in such a way that they don't want anybody to be able to poke them with what they desire. Hopefully none of you are fighting over gumballs this morning. Let's think of some other ways that you might be coveting something that does not belong to you. In your workplace, I've been in this job for a number of years. I've climbed the ladder. I have the security. But there's a new person that's coming in. And they have qualifications, but they don't have my experience. But this is my position. And how dare they take it from me. Do you own the position? Do you own the company? What about your homes? How many of you have a mortgage? Yeah, right? We are slaves to a bank for probably 30 years. Around there. At any point, if we default on our mortgage payments, if we don't pay our mortgage... The bank can come back and they can get us. There's some precautions, 
But the reality is this, is that if you don't pay your mortgage, the bank's coming to get your house because you don't own it. How many of you own a car, have a car payment, right? Yeah, me too. <laughs> At any point, if I don't pay my car payment, my loan company has every right to come and take my car. We are responsible humans. We have things that are in front of us that we need to take care of, that we need to be held responsible for. And we can't always get mad when we're in the wrong, caught in the wrong, and then addressed for that wrong. We can't get mad. We're guilty. Maybe this carries over into the life of the church. I'm part of this ministry. I do this. I turn on the lights. I set up the coffee. I play guitar. I play piano. I'm in the nursery. I'm in the barn. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's God's. If we hold it in such a way that we, we, we worship it more than we worship the Creator, we're coveting. This is not ours. But what's clear from these examples in verses 2 through 5 is this isn't just a, a little slap on the wrist experience where somebody does it once and it's, oh, don't do that again. This is a pattern of behavior, friends. These tenants didn't just do this once. They did it multiple times. They beat some. They killed others. They held on to what they said was theirs when it wasn't theirs. And look at how gracious this, this owner has been. I just want a piece of the proceed. I don't want the whole thing. I'm giving you my land. I'm giving you these resources. And in verse 6, this owner just wants to reach into the heart of these humans and, and reach out of humanity and love. And he says he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect him. They will respect my son. And so he sent servant after servant after servant after servant after servant to go and work with these people who were not willing to work with him. And he says, this time I'm going to send my very own son, my beloved son. We should be hearing the echoes of Mark chapter 1 here. As Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We should be hearing the echoes of Mark chapter 9 right here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is being so pointed to these people. He is laying this right out for them. Jesus is the beloved son sent by God because God decided that he needed to send someone who would demand respect and handle the gravity of our sinfulness. 
But the owner of this vineyard did something that cost him dearly. Because he saw, hey, if I send my son, they'll, they'll see his authority. They'll respect him. They'll walk with him. They'll recognize, okay, hey, this isn't just a servant anymore. This is the guy. But instead, the, the tenants tells us in verse 7 that they say to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. The owner of this vineyard made a major mistake by sending his son to the tenant farmers. It was the mistake that was miscommunication. Because as he sent his son to the farmers, what verse 7 shows us is that these farmers believe that the master has died. He's not coming on his own. He's no longer sent a servant. And this is, ooh, this is one of his own family members. Ooh, we have an opportunity in front of us. And see, this is what happens when we don't address our sinfulness. We feed our sinfulness. When we just push it back and say, hey, we don't have to deal with that. Ooh, okay, here's the opportunity. Boom. We run. And the greed of our hearts and the selfishness of our hearts gets exposed. And we're just like these tenant farmers in verse 7. They see the opportunity and they say, let us take advantage of what is ours. And in verse 8, they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. It was one thing for the servant to get beat. Another thing for him to get struck on the head. Another thing when they killed him and treated him shamefully. But they take the very son of the master, they beat him, they kill him. And what do they do? They throw him out of the vineyard. This is the ultimate act of rebellion. And they think to themselves, look at what I've got. How would you respond? I'd probably try to be vengeful. I'd probably want to hurt them just like they hurt me. But I love this Charles Spurgeon quote. He says this, if you reject him, if you reject Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is love manifest. But then he adds, let us see for a minute who this messenger is. He is the greatly beloved of his father, and in himself he is of surpassing excellence. The Lord Jesus Christ is so inconceivably glorious that I tremble at any attempt to describe his glory. Assuredly, he is the very God of very God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, and yet deigned to take upon himself a human form. He was born an infant into our weakness, and he lived as a carpenter to share our toil. He took upon himself the form of a servant, and yet in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the prince of the kings of the earth, and yet he took a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. Because of his Godhead, you must not dare harden your hearts. 
He is God's well-beloved. And if you are wise, He will be yours. Do not turn your back on Him whom all the angels worship. Beware lest you reject one whom God loves so well, for He will take it as an insult to Himself. He despises, he that despises the anointed of God has blasphemed God Himself. You put your finger into the very eye of God when you slight His Son. In grieving the Christ, you vex the very heart of God. Therefore, do not do it. I beseech you, then, by the love which God bears to His Son, to listen to this matchless messenger of mercy who would persuade you to repent. If we're honest, we would answer with vengeance to these cries, to this work that has happened. But Jesus doesn't answer that way. He takes our rejection with tear. He takes our wounds and cleanses us. We go to kill him and he dies to redeem us. We bury him and he rises from the dead to give us resurrection. The very God of very God. Does what we need him to do. In verse 9, Jesus says to this group of disciples and the group of the Pharisees, he says, well, what would the owner of the vineyard do? He poses that very question to them. He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is Jesus laying it right out for these people. He's laying it right out for the Pharisees. He's saying, if you reject him, he will send another. He will bring the people who will respond to him because God will not be stopped in what he will accomplish for the salvation of his people. These tenants think that they can kill the servants, that they can kill the son, but nothing will stop the owner from doing what it takes to do what is rightfully his, redeem his people. And he goes on to say, have you not read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Friends, be reminded this morning of what Jesus has done. The very God of very God has taken your sin, and he's put it on himself, and he's redeemed you. And so now you stand as righteous sons and daughters in Christ through repentance and faith. Your identity is new. You have been united to Christ. And through the forgiveness of your sins, you are cleansed. You are no longer the evil tenant. You are now the righteous son, the righteous daughter. You are known by the King of glory. And how we respond to this message has eternal consequences. If we reject him, he will reject us. If we love him in spite of all of our rebellion, he loves us such a way that we cannot even describe. 
in verse 12, we see that the Pharisees didn't respond so well to this message. They were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. At least one time the Pharisees got it. At least they could recognize the cold, hard truth. Jesus spoke this parable against them. But their response wasn't overwhelmed with conviction. It wasn't overwhelmed with repentance. It led to their desire to murder Jesus. If you're feeling the weight of sin this morning, if you're thinking to myself, or yourself, as I'm thinking to myself, this is heavy. It's meant to be heavy, friends. It's not meant to leave you feeling, okay, well, it's just sin. Sin will separate us from God. But do we respond in faith towards Christ? And if you have become a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, you need to just be reminded of how hot the heat is of sin. That sin will take us away from the Lord. I'm not saying that we're going to lose our salvation. I'm not proclaiming that this morning. I'm saying that there are real consequences to your sin. And so you might think of this and think, well, I know Jesus. I don't need to come to know him again. No, you don't. But you do need to practice confession. Confession to the Lord for your sin. You need to exercise repentance. And I'm saying this to you not because I think all of you have things that you need to confess right now. I'm saying this to you knowing that I am someone who needs to confess sin. Someone who needs to repent somebody who is walking in those shoes. But if we don't take our sin seriously, our hearts are going to harden, and we're going to be in real danger with the Lord. So if you're a Christian this morning, respond in repentance. If you're not a Christian this morning, respond by embracing the gospel. The good news is is that Jesus came to rescue you, to redeem you. That in him, you can have new life. A life that's eternal. A life that has purpose. A life that has a new identity. A family in the church a family across all of the local churches and the universal church of believers. There can be hope for you today, but it comes to the cost of repentance. Join me as I pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you have been overwhelmingly gracious to us that you are a giver of good gifts, that the very things that we enjoy this morning and enjoy most of every day of every week, 
you have placed them there for us. We pray, Father, that you would help us as we look into our sin in this moment. God, we confess our pride. God, we, we confess that at times our pride leads us to isolation and we think that we don't need anyone else. God, we pray that you would forgive us of our pride. God, we confess our lust this morning that we look after things and people that are not ours. And we pray, God, that you would forgive us. God, we pray and confess our coveting, that we desire what is not ours, not rightfully ours, and we hold on to it in such a way that we make it ours. But God, we confess that these things don't belong to us, and that we need your forgiveness. God, we confess that even in this moment that there are broken relationships that exist in us as the church, as individual members of it, we pray that you would help us to embrace reconciliation, that we would come together in Christ and practice forgiveness. God, we pray that you would help us to live in your power for your glory and that we would make much of your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. amen. Friends, we have an awesome opportunity to respond right now through song. So as we get to sing together, we get to sing Lamb of